Hello, and welcome back to the Hillbilly Oracle podcast. I'm Mars Corbeau. We're going to give this podcast another try. The, the last episode I recorded feels like it came out pretty well. Same situation as last time. Still don't have a full laptop. Still recording through the web app. No editing whatsoever. Incredibly low-tech. But I did really also want to talk about another topic that's been floating around recently, which is shadow working while sick, which is very appropriate because presently it's about two in the morning. I'm not normally up at two in the morning, uh, except for when I have fibromyalgia flares. And I've been in a fibromyalgia flare for about 10 days at this point. So I am, it's really starting to wear on me. And as someone for whom shadow work is a core practice, this is very relevant for me right now. And I wanted to share some of my thoughts to help anyone else who might be in my boat or just as a way to think about shadow working while there's so much sickness in the news as well. First, I want to put up a disclaimer that there is absolutely no expectation that you continue to shadow work while you're sick. I think this is incredibly important to say because not enough of us seem to get the message that when you are sick, you, you focus on being sick. These are just thoughts and tools for those people who want to continue to work while they're sick, especially for people who are chronically ill and find themselves sick for long stretches where it's harder to put this stuff off, but they're absolutely not necessary for you. So if if you are feeling the impulse to put it aside, at least for a while, and focus on yourself while you're sick, you should absolutely do that. And I really recommend it on the whole. Being sick is its own work. It's its own job. And there's no reason to add any pressure to that process whatsoever. So I just wanted to get that disclaimer out. First and foremost, this is not for folks who feel like they need to be resting. This is for folks who are sick or dealing with an illness that kind of comes and goes or are just feeling nervous about the possibility that they might get sick with what's going on. And and that's where this is coming from. That's the place that I'm speaking from in this moment. So I want to start things off with why is illness in the shadow? Why do we not think about illness? Why, why do we push it into the unconscious and push our own illnesses into the, the, the subconscious where we're not as aware of them? I really do think that culturally there's this idea that weakness of any kind is a personal failing, is a character trait. There's this related idea in some circles that weakness is actually laziness and that it's a choice. So when we're ill, obviously it exposes all of our weaknesses, which exposes us to this concept that, oh no, we have this personal fe- personal failing going on and that we're actually choosing it, which is obviously not true when we stop to think about it, but that's that's what's going on in the subconscious. That's what we have thrown back there. Also, I, I'm speaking as someone who lives in the in the United States, 
in the South. I'm from Appalachia originally. And, and while the South and Appalachia definitely do have what I would call higher pain tolerances, we don't talk about pain at all. It is rude to talk about pain in my particular region. And I'm not really sure how it is in other places, other parts of the U.S. and other parts of the world, but I know where I'm at, we don't have a very healthy cultural relationship with pain. Uh, When there's pressure to be happy as much as possible, pain is the opposite of that. Pain is failure. You have failed to, to be happy in front of other people. We don't have many widely understood or available tools for pain. And anybody who is a chronic pain sufferer will regale you with the many things that they have tried to manage their own pain and the the ups and downs of that process. We just, we don't know how to think about it even. The lack of control that illness exposes us to and pain exposes us to in our own bodies is completely terrifying. It is If you've not experienced it, it's really hard to capture, but it's like feeling possessed. You are no longer the captain of the ship you call yourself. It is just you've lost control of the boat and it is going where it's going to go. And it is so completely terrifying to feel like you're just along for the ride. It also really does bring up this question that I'm going to focus on for a bit of what is a good life? Because we have to start asking ourselves, is life in pain less worthy of living? Like if I'm going to be in pain for a big chunk of my life, does that make my life less worthy of being lived? There's also this question of, is a life with illness left worthy of less worthy of living? Tripping over my words tonight. It's not a question that I think any of us are given many tools to investigate because we all have this, well, all of us who who were not born necessarily with a particular condition have this belief that we are somehow the exception and we will go on being healthy for as long as we are here and somehow we will manage to escape death too, I think. Like we don't ever really consider what is a good life? What is a worthy life? At what point would life no longer be worthy? And a lot of studies have actually shown that doctors and medical professions will wildly misjudge who feels that their life is worth living. And I think we too misjudge what life is worth living. So I want to focus on this question of what is a good life I think there's a lot to be said for examining it through the two cultural lenses that we're given to begin with, and then trying to reflect on what might be a third. We're given two main ones, which are impact and experiences. They're competing cultural ideas of what makes a good life. We're told that purpose, that our purpose is to enjoy life and be grateful for what we have, that we should maximize happiness and minimize sadness. And that is the goal. Or, or either, and in addition to, we are told to work hard for others and leave a legacy, leave something to be remembered by and build something for people who come after us. But you might notice 
that these things are not really achievable at the same time. Or at least it's very, very hard to achieve them at the same time. It's very hard to be maximally happy and putting in an incredible amount of hard work. And if you have managed to find that balance, congrats. And I am incredibly jealous. But a lot of us are not living that kind of life where those come together. So it begs the question of, of which do you tend towards, which do you gravitate towards, which one is correct, which one resonates more. Uh, these things also are just not super achievable for people who are ill for any stretch of time, but definitely people who are ill for a long time, whether it's acutely or chronically, whether it's very intense and you get over it or it just is there until you're gone. No matter what version of disability or illness you're dealing with, legacy is usually not at the top of what you're thinking about. And happiness is a very, very complicated beast. Which brings me to the point that deciding our own definitions of what a good life is can ease the shadow responses we have around our own illnesses. And that's been huge for me personally. It, it really does need to include a good life that has a clear-eyed view of pain, suffering, and death. So when you are thinking through your idea of what a good life is, make sure you're considering what your good life looks like when you're suffering and what your good life looks like when you're going out the door. An example is my idea of a good life is to bear witness to the universe. I say that I am creation knowing itself. And if I am paying attention, then I am living a good life. And that is genuinely how I feel. If I am being observant to my present state, I am living a good life. Uh, there's a Buddhist saying that I like a lot. I'm experiencing this on behalf of all creation, on behalf of all existence. And that is something that I really, truly feel at the core of my being. And you'll notice that that's not incompatible with being in pain or being sick or even dying. So understand that as you look for what's true for you internally and rely less on these cultural ideas, make sure it includes how you can live a good life even if you're in pain or even if you're dying. Speaking of dying, I think it's important to discuss why death is in the shadow. I think most of us have our own ideas about why that is. Mine are that we don't have a cultural narrative, at least here in the US, of death, and we don't have a lot of tools to deal with it. We are very ill-prepared for grief, and we are very ill-prepared for even just the mechanics of a person dying. Many people will never see death up close until it is either a very close family member, and sometimes even not even then, uh, or their own time to die. That's not as uncommon as you would think. It's when you don't know what you're going into and you've never seen anybody else do it, it makes death that much scarier. And the unknown alone 
can be a trigger to anybody's shadow can really raise this very, very unsettling shadow response in the back of our head when anything even touches on the thought of death. And we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. So obviously that's getting touched a little bit more often than in daily life. So it's important that we think through death as a concept and what what role it plays in our life. And unfortunately, we are not very well supported in that right now. One of the ways that I think is really important to think about death is in the same way that you would think about what a good life is, consider what a good death is. And and I've heard a lot of different people say what they think a good death is, especially younger people. A lot of people say, I want to die at home surrounded by family. A lot of people say, I want to die in my sleep. Some people say, I want to go out blazing. They want it to be quick. Um, Which are all valid, but having worked in nursing homes and in hospitals, I have talked to people who were on the brink of death. And I've asked them what 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 was most important for them in the process. And the answers I heard most often were sometimes it'd be family, sometimes it'd be sleep or quick, but more often than not, it was dignity. And I don't think this is a thing people consider until they don't have it. But dignity and some measure of control over the process and over their appearance was so important to them. Family often featured in them, but for a lot of folks, it was less family and more a kind person. Some people I talked to really wanted some of the nurses or aides that had been helping them to be at least nearby when they passed. And they frequently, frequently talked about how they didn't want to leave anything harmful behind for their family to deal with. So those aren't necessarily the same things that culturally we're used to thinking about as being a good death. Dignity, like I said, is not something we think about. Our affairs that we leave behind, the mechanics of death are not things that we think about very often, unless you've experienced it up close in which you know how intense that can be. So reflecting on a good death can help us begin to imagine death in a new way. It's less terrifying when we literally think through the process of dying, whether that's physically in our bodies or in our affairs or just how that might be to experience that, to experience it in whatever way you hope to experience it. It's easier for us to guide the part of ourself in shadow that fears it and begin to heal it when we approach this from a place of curiosity instead of fear, curiosity is hands down the best antidote to fear. So if you're ever hitting a block in your shadow work and you're like, I do not know how to get past this. I'm utterly terrified. The best thing that I can tell you is to try to find something interesting about it and follow your curiosity. Being sick is incredibly hard work and dying is often just as hard work. And I don't think we give it enough credit. Being sick and dying are both physically exhausting and emotionally draining. 
When we can do more emotional work around death before we reach it, we are better equipped to die in unburdened and uncomplicated ways. So if you're looking to do some shadow work around death, do think about what you're giving yourself in the future. Because a lot of people don't understand the gift that they're giving themselves by thinking about death ahead of time. And it's very empowering closer to the end of life if you've done your thought done your deep thinking and your processing before you're right there. I think one way to begin to interact with death in a way that is a little less scary for a lot of folks is investigating traditions or prayers for the sick and the dying. There's a security really in knowing what you're going to say or what you're going to do if you find yourself very ill a lot of religions have prayers that meditate on death or are said right before it. Some have prayers specifically for those who are ill and the outcome is just unknown. I really recommend if you come from a tradition like that, investigate what those prayers are, memorize them, include that as part of your shadow work around death and illness. Let's see. I also, if you're coming from more of a pagan background, we... We're not an organized tradition by any means. And so I would recommend working with a psychopomp. And what I mean by that, psychopomps are deities that would frequently move between life and death in some capacity. So if you're familiar with Greco-Roman deities, this would be Hermes or Mercury. If you're familiar with Egyptian deities, it'd be Yenapu or Anubis. Figures like that that go between often carrying messages or guiding the dead or just having some access to both the living and the dead. They're so fruitful to work with in your practice. Just generally, I think everyone should work with a psychopomp at least once in their life, but they're especially helpful for exploring the relationship between life and death because they know it like the back of their hand. They're often pretty amiable. You know, if you consider how many people they have to get along with in their line of work, they're pretty approachable. They're pretty nice. They're pretty comforting. And they often appreciate um, offerings that are easy to obtain. I'm not totally sure why this is, but I know that there's a common theme of, of accepting water, flowers, coins, music, or stories. Just investigate whatever psychopomp you're interested in. There's usually an offering that's pretty easy to get. It can be as simple as just spending time with them. As you get to know them, you can get to know death and their perspectives. Because as they present their thoughts to you, if you have an ability to, to intuit that, if you don't, highly recommend divination as a medium. And they, their mindset tends to come across in their answers. And as you get used to hearing their responses, you, you begin to take some of it in yourself and you begin to look at death a little differently. You may, depending on your relationship with a particular psychopomp, be able to journey for a certain measure of the path a little bit further than you would normally as someone who is still alive. I can't really go into that right now. That's that's not something I have a ton of experience with or I'm ready to talk about, but it is definitely something you can negotiate with the deity that you're working with, the psychopomp that you're working with to 
to move with them as they go about their job. They are usually not wanting to do this with just anybody. So understand that if that's something you really want to do, you're going to have to build up a relationship and see if that's something that they're interested in down the road. But it is an option. I wanted to throw it out there just for folks who enjoy journeying as a way to process things in shadow work. Another really good way to begin to do shadow work around illness and around death, because I do feel like shadow work around illness is ultimately shadow work around death, uh, is working with ancestors. They have experienced death and they are invested in you, which is the ideal because they're more willing to answer questions than just about anybody else that you're going to try to get into contact with. They often will work the hardest when someone is sick too. So it's really important if you are able to, to try to go ahead and make a connection with them. When my mom was really ill and in the hospital, um, she had a very sudden, very bad uh, aneurysm last year. One of the first things my friend, who's a very accomplished witch, asked me was if they could have my mom's name, my grandmother's name, and my grandmother's mom's name to help petition for protection over her. And when I asked him, you know, why would I go first to the ancestors? I've not always historically had the best interactions with my with my ancestors. His response was that, well, they're gonna they're they're her line. They're gonna be the most invested in seeing her live through this. And I hadn't really done a lot of work with ancestors prior to that. And it's what got me into it, ultimately. The connection to ancestors links us with life before us and with life after us. It's understanding where we are in this tapestry and kind of our place in this interaction between life and death. And it can really help ease the fear around death and around illness for sure, especially when you feel like you have somebody looking out for you. I also really recommend doing some sort of memento mori exercise. This will be different for everybody and I don't necessarily recommend doing this when you're in a bad headspace at all, but memento mori was just, they were these items that were especially popular in Europe at various times that Uh, The phrase itself means, remember, you will die. And it was seen as kind of a cornerstone phrase to, to living a good life, that if you recognize you would die, you would live a better life. And I do agree to some degree that imagining our own deaths can help ease the shadow responses we have around it and illness too. And it can help us realize what is most important and most vital to us in the present, for sure. Like if you take time to sit there and think, okay, well, you know, death is inevitable. It's coming for me eventually. It might come tomorrow, it might come later on. What am I going to do knowing that your life, if, you, if you're not already doing that, you will see your life shift for sure. From a magic or a witchcraft perspective, uh, for those of us who work with spirits, it prepares us for experiences like spirit initiation, which can feel like death. And again, it's a little bit beyond the scope of what I want to talk about here, but 
if you're doing any sort of spirit initiation, it's often not very pretty. And understanding mortal death is a way to understand that spiritual death that many people undergo when they seek out things like spiritual initiation. So these are my general thoughts. I really hope that in a time so dominated by sickness and illness, you'll take a little bit of your time, a little bit of your shadow work time to think through what place illness and death have in your shadow work and what responses, what it brings up in you. It's just so vital. I mean, at any time really, but especially in times like this, when we are trying to process the mass casualties that we're seeing with COVID-19 to understand our own personal relationship with death so that it, so that our feelings and our shadow responses, one, don't interfere with other people we're around or, or with our, our mental health and our well-being, but also with our magic as well. So I hope these thoughts have been helpful. If you're interested in finding out more about me or my work, you can find me at hillbillyoracle.tumblr.com. I'm also a hillbillyoracle on Instagram as well. Thank you so much 